APCA is providing regular updates and guidance on COVID-19. On March 26, we recorded a video dialogue with Mike Landry, Phil Shepard, Rachel Moses, and APTA staff, Heidi Kozakowski, discussing the international response to COVID-19. Here's that discussion. Great. Uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us this afternoon as we discuss the international physical therapist response to COVID-19. Uh, my name is Heidi Kozakowski. I'm a physical therapist. And uh, I'm a senior practice specialist at the American Physical Therapy Association. So with me today, we've got three guests um, from different countries. First, we've got Mike Landry, who is a Canadian um, physical therapist and a professor in the School of Medicine and in the Duke Global Health Institute at Duke University. He has spent over 20 years working in complex emergencies, including post-conflict zones and sudden onset disasters. And he's consulted for many international agencies, including the World Health Organization and the International Organization for Migration. He's well-published in the areas of global health and rehabilitation, including two very recent editorials on COVID-19 and physical therapy. So thank you for joining us, Mike. Uh, we've also got Phil Shepard. He's also a Canadian physicist and a Doctor of Public Health candidate at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in the UK. He's worked in humanitarian crises around the globe in immediate response to long-term recovery following disasters. He has experience in a variety of settings, including sudden onset disasters, conflicts, displacement, and refugee camps. His current focus is on increasing access to healthcare and humanitarian services for people affected by crises. So thank you, Phil, for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've got Rachel. So Rachel Moses is a consultant respiratory physiotherapist from the UK specializing in complex ventilation and airway clearance. Over the last 20 years, Rachel has completed military operational tours, emergency deployments, and humanitarian aid work. She's very passionate about clinical networks across organizational boundaries and international collaboration. So welcome, Rachel. Hello. So I'm just going to spend a minute just um, going over a little bit of the response to date from the APTA. Um, for, for physical therapists in the United States, um, as you all are aware, the first week of our response, we really had to focus on the regulatory issues. So APTA quickly, um, you know, discussed and clarified things coming out about telerehab, e-visits with C um, CSM, CSM, CMS, and with commercial payers. Um, and so... As we've kind of started to clarify that, you know, this is developing situations, questions are arising because new situations are arising every day for physical therapists across the United States. This week, we focused a little bit more on the practice aspect and implications from it, and we relied on international resources, um, especially a very recent one from, from Rachel, which we'll talk about more um, in a minute. So before we kind of get started, um, Mike has um, agreed to just kind of talk to us about the continuum of disaster management and kind of give us an overview of the epidemiological um, situation. So Mike, did you want to go ahead? Yeah, thanks, Heidi. Um, and, and thank you so much for organizing this. Uh, we uh, wanted to maybe start off with what we would normally do in an actual disaster in, a, in another country. Um, the three of us have had this kind of experience. And generally, we start these meetings with what we call a 
situation report or a sit rep. And it really is just reviewing some of the numbers. So what I, I'd like to do is sort of kind of get everyone caught up a little bit as of today. The, um, the, the numbers change. In fact, they, they change almost on an hour to hour basis. So uh, I'll read off some of these numbers. They're quite large. Um, they're almost hard to understand and put into context uh, uh, because every single one of these people uh, has, a, has a name and a family. So well, I'm going to read off some of these numbers and they're large. I think what we need to understand in the United States is that um, we're not anywhere close to the peak. Um, some of the figures coming out of New York City today are talking about the uh, mass number of lives lost uh, in this actual day. So I'll read some of these numbers. So in, if we look at from a global perspective, and these numbers are coming from the World Health Organization, who we are in uh, almost constant contact with here, 416,686,000 people affected, 18,589 people who've, uh, who've died, and COVID is now affecting 197 countries. Uh, three weeks ago, in one of the publications uh, that came out in Physiotherapy, the UK Journal, um, even within a few days, we had to keep changing the number of countries that are affected. So this is moving fairly quickly. In the United States, as of today, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 deaths, 70,000 people who've tested positive, although um, the, the numbers uh, are sort of camouflage reality in, in many ways due to the, uh, the, the number of tests that are out there. What the CDC and WHO discussed yesterday, which is a really critical turning point in infectious disease, is that now there are about equal number globally of people who've been infected through community transmission, which is often undeclared, unclear how it happened. So the same number of community transmissions approximately to international travel numbers. And this is uh, pretty key when you start looking at um, um, infectious disease spread. Um, a couple more little bits and pieces that I think are fairly important. Some new data has come out that, um, uh, that the, the, the coronavirus now can affect the olfactory nerves. And so one of the new symptoms that um, Emerge is looking at are uh, loss of smell and taste. Uh, therefore indicating somewhat of a crossing of the blood-brain barrier. So th this is a game changer in terms of what we think about this, uh, what COVID-19 may or may not do. Uh, I think we should mention a little bit around New York City as of today. Uh, New York as a state occupies about 6% of the world's confirmed cases. And so if you look at the United States, it's not equally distributed in terms of who is hitting the peaks of infection uh, and at what rates. Um, we know now in New York State, something in the neighborhood of 37,000 people have been, uh, have tested positive and are affected 400 deaths uh, and something like 5,000 people hospitalized as we speak. The governor had an order as of today that all hospitals needed to create an additional 50% capacity inside of their environment, meaning uh, non-essential care is being um, mobilized elsewhere. I'll come back on this because I think this is an area where physical therapists can weigh in participate, create new strategies that can optimize this uh, throughput in terms of hospitals. Um, uh, High-income countries such as the United States, Canada, and Britain uh, are, are understanding this in a very different way than middle and low-income countries. Uh, and uh, I was just speaking with another American PT this morning, April Gamble, many of you might uh, know April, uh, there in Kurdistan region of Iraq, uh, suggesting that her area um, actually, they're controlling it very, very well. 
uh, mostly because they have some experience in terms of disaster response and how to control patient and population flows. And so some of the middle and lower resource environments are actually doing um, maybe better than others. Not, and certainly not the rule across the entire spectrum of countries. I might mention also Lebanon um, colleagues there who I've been speaking with um, are, are, are tilting a little bit towards panic mode in terms of what would happen if, um, well, maybe it's not what, it's when uh, COVID-19 begins to affect uh, millions of people who are in refugee camps, uh, where there'd be very little ability to control it at that point. So, so the fear sometimes, and at least in this case, is that we as a global society could be witness to uh, very large scale numbers uh, if, if this is not controlled with some pretty aggressive means. So in Lebanon, there is uh, military action to withhold people. Um, on that note, um, in Canada, uh, there are now uh, federal fines that can be imposed uh, up to uh, $750,000. This is not a mistake, $750,000 for people who are not obeying the, uh, the stay at home rules. Um, and so, so I think now governments and um, other levers are going to be used to enforce because in order for us to plank that curve or, you know, lower the curve, uh, we, we really need people to be adhering to globally uh, these public health measures. And so undoubtedly, you, everyone has heard the, the, uh, the call to do that. Um, and I'm sure everyone has also seen some of the video coming from more uh, beach-like front property uh, where a lot of people have been gathering and socializing. Um, you know, so let me just, um, that's a little bit of the background. Uh, many of this, these items you will already know. I encourage you strongly to, th to look towards the uh, CDC website, the World Health Organization and others, uh, reliable sources, the APTA, and we have a new initiative that will be launched, I think, fairly soon. Maybe Heidi will mention that. But along this trajectory over time, in an emergency situation, you'll see that um, there are essentially four phases, depends how you want to look at it, but there's the sort of pre-emergency phase, uh, let's call it the acute phase of a disaster, this post-recovery and something more along the lines of long-term um, uh, rehab or long-term uh, restoration. So we're essentially in this acute phase of these normal distributions of, uh, of, of disaster response. Um, the uh, the pre-emergency pre phase would have been pre-planning, uh, which, you know, I'm not sure anyone has done it very well. Uh, some have. Uh, and if I could just maybe make a little plug in terms of the pre-planning, and I know I'm not going to share my screen, but what you have here is uh, a few years ago, actually 2017, World Health Organization launched uh, what's called Minimal Technical Standards and Recommendations for Rehabilitation in Emergency Medical Teams. So what this is is a series of guidelines around emergencies, including infectious disease and where and how rehabilitation uh, can be leveraged. Um, it's an amazing document, and I think there's a lot of uh, information there that could be very helpful as we um, maybe plan what we will do tomorrow in the next two weeks, but certainly what we should be doing in the longer term. Now, in the acute phase, and, and I'm, I'm sure Rachel will, will make mention of this given her experience, um, there's plenty of scope of practice what the physical therapist does inside of these acute responses. Uh, a lot of it has to do with direct one-on-one -on -one intervention from a respiratory care perspective, people on ventilators, et cetera. But I think what needs to be kept in our mind is even though we're not um, infectious disease physicians, what we're doing here is optimizing the system in such a way that we can improve the throughput of patients so that other patients can come in in a surge. 
Uh, and so certainly there's evidence, uh, strong evidence based around, um, uh, around rehabilitation, physical therapy, maybe in particular in the acute phase to improve function and to move people quicker. Um, ARDS is, uh, is one of the outcomes here, which is obviously going to create some scarring down the road. So there's plenty of reason why we need to intervene early on. Other areas that we can talk about in terms of acute uh, response have to do with mobilizing patients, again, all with the objective of increasing the throughput. Um, I think in moments like this, if you think about New York City hospitals, which are eliminating all of their uh, sort of um, unnecessary or non-urgency care outside, and it is waiting for the surge that will happen. Most of the predictive models talk about next week, somewhere around April 2nd, in, in terms of the, the spike and, or the peak. Uh, and so, in any case, um, we have to start thinking, how will we be involved to move people through? And that can be training physicians, nurses, other care practitioners in that hospital to start thinking, when are people safe? When can we move them along as early as possible to get more people in the system? Then we start thinking, uh, a little bit more around that post-recovery phase and long-term. And I'd, I'd like to say um, that th we will get through this. Um, we always have. We always will. Uh, we will lick our wounds after this, having not been prepared. Um, but what will happen is that you're, we're going to face a very large cohort of people who are currently not necessarily who haven't gotten the virus, but who are isolated, who are quarantined, we will begin to develop all kinds of functional and disability-related outcomes that we're in areas where we as physios can actually get very involved in increasing their movement so that they're prepared for the next stage. I'll, I'll just put up another um, sort of print-off because I don't want to risk uh, sharing my screen out of absolute fear that it will shut the system. But you can see, and again, this is in the minimal technical standards. Um, the dotted uh, red line here that goes up is rehabilitation need after emergencies. The dark blue line are um, uh, medical necessity after emergencies. So you can see, obviously, a spike in medical necessity that subsides over time. But rehabilitation, if you will, has an upward trajectory. Uh, and so please refer back, and maybe we can post it somewhere, Heidi, the, the minimal technical mm -hmm. standards. This yep. is some data that is included. But the point I'm trying to make is that just getting through this next surge is, is only the beginning from a disability and rehabilitation perspective. And so it, there is no options for us to wait until uh, it is more convenient to intervene. We have to intervene now. And there are plenty of physical therapists around the country, certainly around the world, like Rachel, heroes in this, uh, in this battle, we're doing the right thing. Uh, the question is, how do we reorganize ourselves in such short time to be able to be effective? I'll leave you with maybe five recommendations, at least from my perspective, of what PTs around the countries can do. Uh, the first one is, let's all stay well and make sure our families are well. You don't need to put yourself in risk position, and there's plenty of indication around PPE if you're going to be involved with how we can stay well. Number two, be that want to see inside of our communities in terms of respecting distance and respecting uh, physical isolation. Don't be those groups of people who others will say, well, why aren't they doing it? We need to be, um, well, as a, all health providers, uh, the model of how to change. If you can, volunteer. But don't just volunteer anyway. There's a process. The APT is going to be launching fairly soon, today or tomorrow, around how you can get involved. 
Volunteering can be coming on this roster, but it can also mean calling up neighbors, calling up your patients, not to bill them, but to find out what they're, how they're doing. Is there anything that we can be doing in the interim to make sure that they're functional, that their mental health is secure, that they themselves are secured? Let's reach out to those people um, and make sure that we're, we're spreading our wings in terms of, uh, of effect. Um, you know, I might, I might just um, end there. I think if those are three particular recommendations, I think that are really important as we keep moving forward. Um, emergency response is part of our scope of practice, uh, no matter where you are. So uh, it's time to think okay. about it. Thanks, Heidi. I'll pass it over yeah, to you. Yeah, so thank you so much, Mike. That was really informative and, um, and I hope it can help um, ease some stress that maybe some physical therapists are having about their role and their place during this crisis. Um, so if Phil um, and Rachel, if you could each just introduce yourself, where you live, uh, what type of um, setting that you work in, the type of patients that you see, and maybe give an overview of the response in your country, uh, that would be great. So um, why, don't, why don't we start with Phil? Good. Thanks, Heidi. And thank you to the APTA for putting on this discussion, which is really important right now. So my name is Phil Shepard. I'm a physical therapist from Canada, and I'm currently completing a doctorate of public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, with a focus really on humanitarian crises and how we can improve access to healthcare, rehabilitation, and humanitarian services for people that are affected by disasters and crises. Now, I also work clinically and the clinic where I was working in Canada actually closed because of COVID-19 and to try and prevent the spread of COVID-19. And patients were, because of this, patients were, were greatly affected. Now patients that need uh, care and for injuries or anything that falls under the scope of physiotherapy don't have access to that in the community. So that's obviously, it's something that's affecting patients individually, but it's also going to affect our healthcare systems as a whole. So now these patients, especially with emergency cases, they don't have anywhere else to go. So they're going to be going to hospitals to seek care. So we're adding on to that burden on the, the healthcare system by not providing this type of service. So what we're seeing really in Canada is really similar to some of the experiences that I've had in in disasters and humanitarian crises. So I was supporting the response in Nepal within hours after the earthquakes struck the country. And the situation in sudden onset disasters such as in Nepal is that there's a large influx of patients that are seeking care and there's a short supply for emergency and acute care resources. And that's kind of what we're seeing now in Canada. The big difference is that in Canada, we're a little bit behind in terms of the pandemic and the influx of patients. So we have a small window where we can actually prepare to a certain extent and get ready for the number of patients that are coming in. So hospitals are doing that. They're trying to increase capacity. And Mike mentioned this as well, but one of the things that we can do in this preparedness phase where we're at is really try to get physiotherapists and rehabilitation professionals in hospitals and acute care centers to try and improve function and mobility and independence so we can get patients out of the hospitals as quickly as we can before we see this, this influx in the number of COVID-19 patients. 
So of course that's good for the patients because then they're able to self-isolate at home. So we're preventing the spread, but it's also good for the healthcare system to create a little bit more of a, a supply of acute care resources. Now in the, so in the response, when we do see this influx of patients that we're expecting in the coming weeks, as Mike said, we're trying to get physiotherapists in hospitals. So cardiorespiratory physiotherapy has been shown to decrease the need for mechanical ventilation as well as the duration that's required. So what we're trying to do there is really speed up the process and create faster turnaround times so that we can get people that require care into those areas. Now, Mike kind of mentioned this as well, but one of the, one of the things that we need to be thinking about right now is long-term care and the long-term effects of COVID-19 for individuals as well as countries and economies. So one of the things I was working on when I was in Nepal, I was working with the International Organization for Migration and we developed what's called a step-down care facility. And this type of facility is kind of a transitional facility where people can go after they leave hospitals and before they go back to their communities. And we use outcome measures such as the HUDAS and it, we had a quantifiable difference in terms of function and ability to uh, people could go back to their communities and their work quicker and at a higher level of function. So what we can do is this might be an option when we're thinking about the long-term effects of COVID-19 for patients is creating some system where patients can receive care in their communities that's directly targeted for COVID-19 and cardiorespiratory conditions. And again, this is something that's good for patients as well as communities and countries and economies. Cause really if we can get people back to work faster and with higher function, then that'll help the entire system. So the other thing that we're in Canada, the provincially, we have a provincially governed system. So what's been happening across the country is that various ministers of health are now requesting healthcare professionals enroll in a system um, within the government where they can then be linked to an acute care facility if the need is there. And they're actually asking people to come out of retirement or new grads to also join on this list. Now, this is a, you know, it's a good initiative to try and get a roster like this developed. One of the things that we're really pushing for here in Canada is the need for proper training for physical therapists and for all healthcare professionals so that they're protecting themselves, they're, profession, they're protecting the patients, their communities, and the profession as a whole. So that's, the, that's what we're working on here, and we're going to keep moving forward as, throughout this entire pandemic. Great. Thank you. Um, I know I have some, some questions for you, but <laughs> why don't we move to Rachel right now and you can kind of give us um, some of your experience, where you're working and, and um, a response from the UK. So um, I work in a major teaching hospital, a major trauma teaching hospital in the northwest of England. Um, and I also run a national network um, of respiratory physiotherapy therapists, respiratory leaders, and um, we've most recently put together an international collaborative as well. Um, so we're getting intel from lots of different places, but from a UK perspective, 
Um, we are networking in terms of sharing our experiences with COVID-19 patients now across the critical care environment all the way through to, you know, the post-extubation phase now. Obviously, we are, we are just at the start of this curve in the UK. I think we have just under 100,000 um, 12,000 cases. Um, I think we've had just over 500 deaths. These are the figures from yesterday. Um, and very much of our work has been centred in the intensive care environment and for those patients who ceiling of treatment is maybe um, CPAP slash that non-invasive ventilation kind of umbrella. So um, speaking from a UK perspective, um, we very much had a little bit of a head start um, as you guys probably did a little bit um, in terms of what we'd seen our European colleagues go for. So, so obviously China um, in late December through to then the Italian peak, which hit them very hard and very fast. And we have a number of Italian friends and colleagues working out there and um, they've been very open and honest about sharing their experiences on social media and through the platforms so we've learned a lot about how to plan. So we, we have spent and are still spending a lot of time in the UK planning our workforce, preparing our workforce. So that includes online education, policies, documents, guidelines, redeploying staff from areas of non-acute to acute sectors, using workforces that don't exist in hospitals. So they may be like your musculoskeletal therapists. Um, who predominantly work in, say, private practice or in outpatients and what skills they need. So we're upskilling a workforce as well. And we're thinking about traditional respiratory physio roles, but we're also thinking about how the respiratory physios or physiotherapists can support our National Health Service because, you know, we are free at the point of access in our country. So everyone is entitled to every healthcare, and that's very different from some countries. Mm -hmm. um, but because of that, you know, we have challenges within the healthcare for that reason, because we're not just, um, it's not just about COVID-19 planning, it's about maintaining all of our other essential services um, to all of our other patients we care for when we're already, you know, seriously under-resourced staffing-wise um, for a number of reasons. So um, we're trying to deploy a whole workforce to meet the needs of our COVID patients, but then also and maintain, say, you know, our emergency life-saving interventions. So it's very challenging at the moment trying to plan that. But we obviously have a national divide at the moment. So London being the epicentre, unsurprisingly, of the pandemic, um, they are they are really, really badly hit um, to the point where we're opening up a field hospital in London um, very soon in the next few days, a military hospital. Um, and quite what that looks like, I don't think we're sure yet. They're, they're working around the clock on that, but that will be a huge, huge facility looking after thousands of people, not just not just mm -hmm. a couple of hundred. So we're, we're at the stage now, we're on that upward curve. We've tried to flatten the curve by the government of enforced lockdown. So um, only essential workers can leave the house um, and 30 minutes of exercise a day or, or something like that. We, we don't quite know, do we? Because we're just at work all the time. Um, um, and simple measures to help enforce people staying at home because the British public just weren't listening. They're still mm -hmm. really not listening now to some degree. So I think the government are going to get tougher and quite rightly so. So, um, And we've, very similar to Phil, implemented measures to get workforce back from retirement. Um, we have made changes to our registration for students 
So we, we're going to have a temporary register for the healthcare professionals um, um, registration. So if you're nearing qualification in your final year um, and you do meet criteria, you will be qualified as a qualified like allied health professional, including physiotherapy, including nurses. I think the nurses are qualifying six months early to get them um, on a register so they have some protection from their um, um, respective professional bodies. So we are trying to mobilise a, a huge workforce of people who are at the back end of retirement and people who are actually just about ready there to be qualified, but we need them qualified now. Mm -hmm. So I can't stress for other countries who might be listening to this about the your workforce planning is huge in this and don't wait for it to happen. I think there's still a lot of people thinking it's not going to come to us, it's not going to happen, but it's going to happen to everyone. And, you know, I'm hearing about my, um, my country so I do humanitarian work in Palestine still so I'm an active worker there and um, Gaza have their first two cases and I cannot think how these countries are going to manage when we have the medical infrastructure we do and some of our you know our friends in other countries are really going to mm -hmm. be hit by this pandemic um, so yeah and obviously we've got a lot of clinical experience but I don't know if you want me to talk about that now or I want to um, yeah, and just just a minute, because I, I actually just have a question for, for both you and Phil, um, because it sounds like both countries are, are trying to scale up the workforce and, and, and kind of upskill, you know, the current um, physios that are working there. That hasn't quite been the response in the United States, and it seems like there are, you know, quite a few physical therapists that that maybe aren't in the acute setting, don't work in the ICU, that are shutting doors, clinic doors, either by mandate um, or by making, you know, that's the best decision for them and their patients. So kind of for both of you in the UK, I want to know, are all the physios still working, even seeing things that aren't considered acute? And, and it could be kind of outpatient things that, you know, maybe like non-urgent, but, but because of this lapse of therapy, their conditions have a high likelihood of deteriorating and then needing more therapy later on. And, and the same thing for you, Phil, in, in Canada, you said your clinic, you know, shut its doors. Was that by mandate? Was that, because a lot of the, the issues we're having is this kind of decision-making around when do I, when is it the best choice for, for my patients, my staff to not provide care? So maybe if you could each kind of talk about those um, in your respective countries. So Rachel, do you yeah. Yep. So, um that's a really great question and it is a really hard for private practitioners whose sole income is through their business and that's touching mm -hmm. people and you know rehabilitating people so um there's a fine line in terms of economics in terms of the uk um i'm pretty well connected um through through the msk networks um being a respiratory physio and there was a number of my colleagues as soon as this started to escalate and we were talking about social distancing they made the decision electively to close their clinics because they felt they had a, a you know duty of care to people to follow government you know what was very soft government advice mm -hmm. at the time it was you know stay out of pubs and restaurants if you can if you you know we would recommend it but they um they very much took that responsibility on themselves then there was a kind of practices that stayed open right until the government enforced lockdown and um, so they were still treating people with musculoskeletal type injuries now i think the 
the outpatients or the private clinics that shut their doors earlier invested that time to then set up virtual clinics mm-hmm. um virtual networks um online kind of exercise rehabilitation classes where everyone would just dial in and someone would do some exercises and we've used digital technology a huge amount in the nhs across the acute and community sector to be able to meet the rehabilitation needs of our patients so um, we've got some great examples on our um, professional website about case studies about how people and you know don't get me wrong in the nhs things like this take 10 years to get into mm-hmm. practice 10 years for guidelines and um and regulations and and rules about how we're going to use these things we are getting these things set up within hours because we have wow. to so it's amazing what things can be achieved when there's a strong need um but yeah that's definitely that's definitely our experience with with regards to the workforce and we have set up bank in our hospitals a lot of hospitals so if you're a registered physiotherapist and you are in private practice and you arrive to work you just pick the phone up phone us up join our bank and we will pay you to come and work in our hospitals in a bank capacity Um, and we're getting like we call it dbs disclosure and barring service you know see if you've got any criminal activity we're getting them checks done in 24 hours and sometimes it can take up to three weeks so um so our human resource departments are working round the clock um to make things happen for to get staff recruited and they're working so hard yeah well that's that's amazing to hear um phil do you want to comment from experience in canada yeah for sure so i'll share a story with you that i think helps to highlight this the situation here especially in terms of private practice and private physiotherapists so we well two stories one the clinic that i'm in we actually we ended up closing our doors because um basically because there were recommendations in terms of isolation and distancing mm-hmm. and just in terms of the safety for patients and um for physios and basically our communities that was kind of the, the recommendations that we got but so Mike and I are hosting these sessions where we're catching up with physiotherapists and rehabilitation professionals from across the country to really get an idea, well, to share resources and research and up-to-date information on COVID-19 and do a, a sit rep kind of like we did today. But then it's also like a, a check-in with physiotherapists to see how this is affecting them, the experiences in different, different coasts, and to see about any of the the challenges people have faced and the solutions that they've come up with. So the other day we were hosting a session and afterwards there was a, an opportunity to have a little bit of a dialogue. And there was a, a physiotherapist who, whose name was Stefan who shared a story where he had to close down his clinic and he's really in doing so he's supporting other physiotherapists that are working within his, uh, within his practice as well as a physiotherapy assistant. So there's, kind of two families mm-hmm. that are really, really affected by this. And the, even when he was speaking, you could hear about, you know, the uncertainty surrounding it and how long we will be, this will go on for. So there's basically in Canada, the, the clinics across the country are closed in the majority of clinics across the country are closed for private practice. And the, the physiotherapist that I've spoken with 
were doing this because of the social isolation, but also when they were working within the last few days, there was a lot of apprehension from the patients, but as well as the, the healthcare professionals themselves, because mm-hmm. there wasn't enough information to make decisions based on recommendations from colleges or associations, each individual clinic was left to do that on their own. Mm-hmm. So what people have been considering now, and there are a few clinics in Canada that are now offering emergency care for physical therapy. And really the idea of this is that it's, you know, we, it's good for the patient because if they have an emergency case, they need to be seen by someone and they don't want to go to the hospitals. And really with the increase in patients that are likely to come in, the hospitals would prefer that they go somewhere else also. Right. So we are getting a little bit of a, um, there is a challenge there because again, it's kind of like what Rachel was saying in, in the UK is that there is, there are no guidelines for this. So what clinics have done is that they're starting to develop them on their own. So what, what constitutes an emergency case? And they'll do that clinic by clinic. And we're starting to see that trickle out a little bit from uh, regulatory bodies and associations, which is good. So the other side of it is I've also been speaking with colleagues from who are working in public practice. So an outpatient and inpatient, and they're saying that within hospitals, things are getting pretty tense. Mm-hmm. So that even, uh, even at the local hospital here, they have like seven physiotherapists, but three of them are pregnant. Um, so they're all looking at whether or not it's even safe for them to be there. So they're, so what we're really trying to do is, um, well, we're trying to link that supply and demand. So get more physiotherapists in and really to, and what we need to understand also is that it, even if you're, we have all these clinics across the country with mainly orthopedic or MSK physiotherapists, but there's opportunities for them to get involved that will help decrease the burden on the medical system and really to mm-hmm. have the potential to save lives. And that could be relieving physiotherapists within the hospitals that have the skills in cardio resp and acute care. Or there are some initiatives in Canada where we have physical therapists ready to go work in emergency departments to assess, diagnose, and triage patients so that uh, doctors and nurses can focus on acute, acute care and uh, COVID-19 cases. I mean, that from, from both of, you know, Canada and the UK, you know, these to me seem like such innovative ideas. I love the idea of setting up this like emergency clinic where people can come in and you're, you know, it's, it's, you're kind of like self-treasuring or self-screening about who should be coming in and when they should be coming in. And so it's kind of a shared decision-making between the patient and the clinician. And I love that. And it's creating um, opportunities for outpatient musculoskeletal uh, physios to work. And in the UK, that the phone line, you know, of, of going into those banks and, um, you know, that's some clinical decision making there as well and making use of physios who aren't kind of frontline responders right now. Um, so my next question for you guys, um, and Rachel, you, you mentioned this, is how is digital health or telerehab, and I'm still kind of learning the, the, the correct words to, to call it, describe it, how in the country and in the health systems where you live, how is that impacting the provision of care? Because in the United States, we've had some kind of federal guidance on relaxing some of our um, 
regulations around it, but in the United States, healthcare is controlled via the state. And so if a state has not, um, you know, signed on to those and kind of relaxed their tele-rehab e-visit um, um, regulation, it doesn't really help. Um, and so that's been kind of an issue that we've had to deal with in the United States is kind of getting the federal information from the Centers for Medicare and, and Medicaid um, and what that means in general. And then people have to apply it state by state, which, you know, a lot of people are working really hard at. A lot of people at the APTA in the Federation of State Boards of Physical Therapy, state chapters are working really hard for it. So how, how is your health system impacted and how is the use of digital health being um, called into action now? So Rachel, would you start with that? Yeah, so um, it's very much led on an individual level at the moment. So there's no government incentive to do this. There is big incentive to do things like telephone reviews in clinics. So if you've got a thoracic or a renal or, you know, a, an orthopedic patient, and converting your outpatients across any speciality that can be medicine, physio, nurse, so telephone reviews. In terms of tele, uh, te tele health, in terms of video calling, um, it's very specific to the individual service. So if we think about the physio application in the UK, we're seeing things like group pulmonary rehabilitation being performed online so um, at a certain time people dial in and um, either Microsoft's teams are using Zoom or Skype. Skype's a little bit more challenging because you can only have so many licenses per organization mm -hmm. but Microsoft's, Microsoft teams we're using a lot um, and then also musculoskeletal triage so just having that conversation um, and be asking for red flags and picking up, you know, giving people advice and actually demonstrating exercises or techniques. We're then seeing um, in terms of wider picture in paediatrics and other, so, you know, we're non-related code of COVID activity that needs to continue. And some admission avoidance as well. So when our patients are discharged from hospital, um, say if they were covid positive patient then following in them up rapid discharge following in them up um you know the next day with um with a, with a video review to see how they're getting on and some centers mm -hmm. are looking into using telehealth with that so sats monitors etc you can have phones on your app now where you can take your saturations and you know take your oh, wow. lung function tests and so the technology is kind of there we're just really haven't probably used it before so I think there's great opportunities. It's probably going to challenge long-term how we do things in the NHS and um, reducing our carbon footprint and, um, you know, other benefits that will come from mm -hmm. the use of digital technology for sure. Um, do I think it's good? Do I think it'll ever fully replace face-to-face? -face? Well, not really, no. And um, there's a lot of patients that obviously can't engage in video consultations. But yeah, certainly from our experience, it's been incredibly helpful driven at local level we're trying to get some of the case studies out to show the benefit and exemplify them um online great great so phil if you could speak to that and then just to let everyone know um we have about 10 minutes left so i'd like it if, if phil could kind of uh respond to that question and then um i also in our remaining time do want to hear about um, the resources that you're developing, Rachel, for respiratory um, therapy, and Phil and Mike, what you guys are doing with this roster. So can we squeeze that all in in about 10 minutes? 
Yeah, sounds good. I'll be quick. So, um, I mean, Rachel covered a, a lot there. So, um, there, there's a lot of innovative ideas coming out. I just wanted to touch on one thing before talking about health, telehealth is that there is a group in Canada that's a group of physiotherapists being led by a practice lead named Mike Sangster in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, who actually has physiotherapists in COVID-19 assessment um, facilities. And he, so they've been really innovative in getting physiotherapists in and making sure that it does fall under the scope of physiotherapy. So in terms of the telehealth, uh, this is clearly something that's picking up quite a bit in Canada and with mixed results. So some people are, are implementing it and getting into it um, pretty quickly. And there, in some cases, people are having really good results. So I have a, uh, a friend who's a physiotherapist named Krista Wark, and she's been actually doing this before the COVID-19 mm-hmm. pandemic. So she was skilled. She went through a lot of steps and thought about how she was going to deliver a scare. So she's having really good results. Whereas others who kind of rushed into it within a week mm-hmm. are having a little bit of difficulty in terms of engaging with patients and even just instructing them on how to, um, how to do certain things on camera. I'll leave it at that because I know okay, we have to well, move on. Thank you. So Rachel, if you could, you know, spend a few minutes just talking about the, the, um, the great work that you're doing um, in terms of interventions for. So, um, so in terms of respiratory physio, um, I don't need to probably tell you guys that these guys, these patients are presenting really unwell with an acute lung injury, ARDS type picture and physiotherapy is really quite limited in that initial acute phase. In the UK, we found slightly different um, um, problems, I suppose, within the intensive care unit in terms of secretion load. So our physios are doing a lot more with manual techniques and they're requiring a lot more like chest physiotherapy. We're just very limited what we can do in terms of ventilator disconnection, etc. But certainly, is there a role for a specialist respiratory physio in the intensive care unit with these patients? Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So then that moves on to the post-ICU phase. These patients are needing a lot of oxygen still. So some of them are quite oxygen dependent and very breathless and very fatigued, even if they've been intubated a short period of time. So that fatigue's really setting in. Now, we are seeing a lot of young patients in the UK. We're also seeing a lot of obese patients within our patient phenotypes that are being intubated so again slightly different to the Italian experience so we're really having to just evolve over time with our rehabilitation techniques with these these patients um, and rather talk than talk about everything that we may or may not do we um, just today have released pre-released a paper um, which was a combined paper actually led by the amazing Peter Thomas in Brisbane, um, cardiorespiratory physio. Um, he had this idea of putting together a paper within two or three weeks to publish a whole paper about physiotherapy, acute physiotherapy in COVID-19. And then, of course, everyone started to get affected by the virus and patients started coming through the door. So that then became a guideline. And it's a very detailed, very comprehensive mm-hmm. um, guideline by very clever people. I was an add-on. George from uh, Sydney just said, do you want to join this group? Because I was banging out some guidelines. And, um, and I would refer that um, people to that. Now it is, and it's, it's in press in the Journal of Physiotherapy. It's mm-hmm. waiting publication, but we have got the manuscript out there. So yeah. please, do, um, please do have a look and, and refer to that. 
Yeah, you can you can get it on WCPT's website, and yeah. they today did a new story about it um, and and a synopsis. So so people will start hearing about it. So thank you for that work, and um, you know I look forward to reading through it. Um, mm-hmm. Non acute um, <laughs> eyes, but I, I, I'm excited about it. So thank you so much for that. Um, so, Mike and Phil, do you want to discuss um, projects you're doing right now, and and maybe the roster? Yeah, let me let me jump in. Can I just say like maybe three things just to follow on a little bit of uh, what Rachel and Phil were saying? The um, in a lot of cases, the data and research on things like telerehab have been very well established. Like as an example, Alan Lee, um, mm-hmm. well published, well known. Uh, so, so a lot of the experts have been out there and, and really have done some wonderful work also, of course, in, in acute care with the guidelines, et cetera. The, there is a key element, though, in a disaster, and emergency like this, which alters a little bit. So it's, it's about taking some of those um, guidelines and some approaches in the community, et cetera, and then applying them in a, in a fairly unusual circumstance. I think that will be really important as we think about the next few weeks um, as the uh, the peaks continue to unfold. Uh, another thing I might mention, that there is new data, actually just JAMA Cardiology, I think it might have been yesterday, uh, that talked about close to 19 or 20% of the COVID population uh, who recovered ended up with um, cardiac injury, so muscle mm. tissue damage. And so Thinking downstream, you know, respiratory, cardiovascular, um, th- these are going to be important systems that we're going to be looking at. And so whether or not that translates into new approaches, I'm not sure, but it's certainly something we should be thinking about um, kind of fairly quickly. Um, and, and maybe let me, so just, and by the way, when you say Phil and Mike, it, it's sort of you two, Heidi, <laughs> it's sort of all over uh, You can describe it better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, we're, we're launched. So there's a couple of things I think that are really important. Um, a lot of uniqueness in the United States compared to Canada and the, and the UK in terms of its size, its geography, the political nature of how things work. Um, I will make another point, if you don't mind, something built on what Rachel said in terms of Palestine in a very low resource environment and how we become worried. Um, there are plenty of low resource communities in the United States, actually just a few stones throw from where I live where sort of the same kinds of worries are going to persist. And even yesterday, uh, the Secretary of the United Nations talked about um, our focus now and in the very near future has to be including low-resource environments, Mm low-income countries, because if we don't, this is not just, there is no borders here, obviously, and so we need to contain it everywhere. Otherwise, this will likely mutate. This will become something different. And so it is time for the world to act in solidarity uh, to address this. And I, I just don't think we're ever going to be the same after this. I think uh, concern around global public security, I mean, if this, Heidi, if this doesn't help us understand why that's important, I'm not really sure what will. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. This is a game changer. And so given that that notion, that background, we've been working, Phil and I have been working with you, Heidi, and the APTA, at launching a process, a, a project that is going to ask all PTs in the United States, if they're interested to go on to a roster, as the other two were just mentioning. Once you're on this roster, we and it's going to be through a, a platform on APTA website. And, APTA um, Engage. 
PT, uh, sorry, it's, say it one more time. It's APTA Engage. APTA Engage, thank you. Um, and so all PTAs can go on to that. Uh, in the next few days, uh, Phil and I will be launching a, uh, we're going to call it a boot camp, and forgive the term, but it is a quick five, ten hour training session for everybody on that um, roster. And while that training happens, we're going to be populating a website called www.ptcovid19.org. Again, ptcovid19.org. It's not live yet. It will be in a few days. Mm -hmm. And we'll be populating with all of the information, including what Rachel is talking about. And we're going to ask people, physios around the world, to send us information. We're hoping this becomes a real clearinghouse of, of data. Uh, we also have a Twitter feed, which is the same, PTCOVID19, at PTCOVID19. Uh, hopefully, all of you can join in and, and, and sort of get the discussion going. Uh, plenty of excellent examples around the world of how PTs can make a difference. So with this roster, we'll train, and then we're going to work through the state chapters to look at demand factors and linking the two together. And um, we're, we will be able to link a lot of uh, the PT volunteers into really making a difference in people's lives, whether it's in the ICU through to the community sector. And so we're launching this very soon. And I think it's going to be a wonderful initiative that was basically Phil's idea that, uh, that we've uh, kind of uh, explored in Canada and now in the United States. And we're very excited about um, helping PTs make a difference out there. Mm -hmm. I yeah, great. So um, I th think it's live either right now or it will be by tomorrow morning, but people can go to um, APTA Engage, um, which is on the APTA.org. Um, if you go into um, about us, I'm confirming. Um, then, um, then you'll be able to put in your information and um, you know register. You know it'll link it up with zip code. And then there's another page separate from APTA um, Engage that will have a place for you know if you know a hospital, a clinic, um, a need in your area, they can go on there and register that. And then we'll work on matching them. Um, and so look for that soon. The other thing that I wanted to just, um, you know, mention to, to anybody listening is that, um, you know, we're, we're working to address all of these concerns and I know they're constantly changing. And so some of the solutions and the uh, guidance that we're giving is constantly changing, but please don't hesitate um, to contact APTA. You can email practice-dept or practice department at apta.org and we will uh, read them and, and respond as best as we can. Um, I believe that's all. So I just want to thank everyone for joining and um, I don't know if anybody else wants to say anything, any last words? Just one last thing before we go is that I know um, all over the world and in the United States, there's, we have an incredible profession and an incredible workforce People want to get involved and they're ready to. So this initiative is amazing just to allow people to do that and make a difference where it matters. Yeah, great, thank you. Yeah. Stay well, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Take care, thank you so much. Official guidance is changing rapidly as the COVID-19 outbreak continues to evolve. APTA has set up a webpage to keep you informed at www apta.org slash coronavirus. Please visit regularly and stay safe. We're all in this together.